So we conceptualized a framework and methodology called 180-100. So it's 100% paid for 80% time for 100% output or productivity. And that means that there is something in it for staff, which is a 20% reduction in working time, but equally there's a guarantee from employers that productivity is going to be maintained. On the Happy Workplace project today, we're joined by Dale Wellerham, the Chief Executive of the Four Day Week Global. This is a super insightful conversation into a concept that is gaining momentum. Dale shares with us how organisations can individualise the approach to work for them and gives us insights into some of the big macro factors that will benefit as a result of a four day week implementation. Enjoy the episode. Dale. Welcome to the Happy Workplace Project. Thanks for joining us today. I can't wait to have this conversation, given that the four-day week is something that does polarise opinion. I wondered if we could start this podcast by gaining an understanding into your background and ultimately how it's led you to become the Chief Executive of the Four Day Week Global. Yeah, thank you so much for having me on, Darius. I'm really excited to have this you know, really in-depth conversation, particularly in the context of you know, the area of work that you're doing and the space of happiness as well. My own background is actually in a very different space. So I originally trained as a physiotherapist in Trinity College Dublin in Ireland. So I'm just across the pond from you. And I suppose I always had an interest in looking at people's health and well-being. And that's one of the main things that physios look at beyond what you think of as a physio, maybe running onto a pitch and helping a sports athlete or a physio based within a hospital setting, maybe helping someone after surgery. So I always had an interest in public health and behavior change. So one of the main things that people struggle with within physiotherapy intervention is actually doing what their physio asks them to do. So I'm sure you have probably previous experiences of maybe where you've had an injury and your physio will give you a, a program of exercises and you might try them for two or three days and then you say, ah, oh, no, it's all grand. So behavior change, I think, was one of those things I'm like, there has to be some form of a science behind this. And how do you motivate people to, to get them to do what you want? So I, I went for my undergraduate into a PhD program in behavioral sciences. And I, I suppose I left my career as a physiotherapist at that point and became a behavioral scientist. Behavioral science then is a multidisciplinary kind of research area, which pulls on the disciplines of neuroscience, anthropology, social psychology, behavioral economics, cognitive psychology, and looks at it from all these different lenses to understand ultimately why do people behave the way that they do. And I, I was looking at the impact of sleep deprivation and fatigue in surgeons and how that impacted on their performance. And started from a very naive place of just assuming that surgeons were sleep deprived because they did a lot of on-call work. But actually, as my research grew over the over the years, I began to understand that there is a huge amount of individual, team, organizational, national, international, professional like issues that exist that are contributing to these very, you know, very prevalent psychological phenomena of fatigue within a particular population cohort. In the middle of my PhD then, COVID hit. So they actually, it might seem like we talk a huge amount about fatigue and burnout now, but before COVID, we did not talk about this at all. And I know that because I was the researcher trying to get this on people's agenda. So I was in a very fortunate place at a very fortunate time to be researching a very 
you know prevalent issue within society and I suppose saw quite quickly the opportunity to bridge research into practice and had the opportunity to contribute to national guidelines and stuff like that with regards to fatigue management and burnout management in healthcare workers. When I finished my PhD then, which I really thoroughly enjoyed, it fundamentally changed my outlook on people and how people organize and how people perform. I, as many people feel with PhDs, needed to go from my ivory tower down into the real world. And I went into Deloitte Human Capital Consulting, which I found is the most naturally fitted area for me to try and experiment whether some of these theories and some of my research actually applied in the real life context, which is ultimately what the endeavor of any sort of publicly funded research should try to endeavor to do. And I went in specializing culture and behavior change there on public and private sector organizations and started applying some of these behavioral science principles and seeing what was landing. So I did that for just under two years, but was always looking at finding the marrying between what was now becoming my skill set and expertise in behavioral science. But what was driving me and what motivated me most was actually improving people's well-being in an authentic and, you know, real way. And during the conversation throughout my PhD, there was this emerging concept of the four day week and the four day week Ireland campaign had launched of which I got involved in, in kind of, you know, a voluntary best basis. And it just, it, it made sense to me. It made sense that something as, as structurally different could have these potential benefits for not just employees' well-being, but ultimately have benefits for everyone within the organization. And so I had an opportunity then to apply for CEO of the company. And one of those very simple narratives, if you don't ask for it, you don't get it. But that is what happened. And I joined the organization then earlier on this year in what has been, you know, the most radically transformative, fun, exciting, scary journey that I've ever undertaken. Wow, what an introduction. Can we just draw on the behavioral piece that you mentioned there? Super interested to understand from your experience and from your research, what it is that actually drives motivation and performance within the workplace from a behavioral angle. Yeah, and I think that's ultimately where we actually need to get the starting point of any of these conversations around work is actually understanding motivations of people. Businesses and organizations run on the effectiveness of how well their people are performing and performance is intrinsically related to people's levels of motivation within workplaces. So not making it easy for myself, I also became a lecturer in a business graduate business school specializing in leadership and motivation. So I've literally just finished a two-week block of teaching on this very topic. So uh, here's what I learned uh, as I was as I was learning alongside the students. There have been several theories of motivation that have been in existence within the literature for about 100 years now. You had, at the very foundation of kind of the study of work and the Industrial Revolution, you had what's called a, a discipline of Taylorism. So this guy called Frederick Taylor went and said, you know, our workers' bodies will fatigue to a certain point. How do we get them to get as much get as much out of them without actually putting them beyond the point of repair where they're going to injure themselves or ultimately lag in productivity. So that was where the conversation around productivity first commenced. And you had, you know, that sort of motivation of management emerged all throughout kind of the early uh, 1940s, 50s. You then had this recognition that actually humans, <laughs> humans drive organizations. So people aren't machines. So actually humans want other things beyond just the mechanical things that we consider that machines do for us in work. So that's where you began to see the emergence of concepts like Herzberg's motivation hygiene theory, which says that 
there are things that need to be resolved within organizations in order to keep people from not dissatisfied. So that's having sufficient salary, the right working conditions, you know, basic fundamental workers needs in order to, to work well. And then you have another side, which is actually a series of motivating factors like building people's purpose, providing people with the right type of work that motivates them, you know, growth opportunities within work, connectedness with colleagues. So these were all sort of new things that we're starting to, we're starting to see. Actually, we, if we can get those right, people can engage in their work a lot more. And the favorite theory of mine, which only started to kind of come in the last kind of the 2000s into the 2010s and it's about a 30-year bridge from research to practice so we're still it's still considered new <laughs> in the world of research is that of self-determination theory so ultimately and there's a huge amount of research to suggest this when you give people sufficient autonomy in their work or in their lives a sufficient relatedness to others so their ability to connect with colleagues or with family or societies or clubs and when you give them a perceived level of competency within their work, so they're doing work that they feel that they are good at, that's making an impact, or outside of work, they feel like they're being a good parent or they're being a good husband or, you know, a good father. That drives intrinsic motivation within people. And when you have intrinsic motivation, you reap the rewards when it comes to things like happiness, well-being and performance. Fantastic. So... Could you elaborate on what role the four-day week plays in people's performance? So the the concept of four-day week is has actually been in discussion since about the 1970s. Richard Nixon actually alluded to it in a speech back then saying that with all of the, the changes that we're seeing in the world of work, particularly around automation and technology, the world of work is going to radically change and workers will not need to spend as much time at work that's not come to fruition. In fact, what has happened is that you have seen a rapid growth in productivity with the emergence of technology because you have technology producing huge amounts and you also now have humans being expected to perform the same standard, if not more. What the problem with that is, is that work has got way more complex over the last 20 years for organizations. And when you think about the original five-day work week, which actually was a huge workers' rights success in and of itself, it used to be six days. It came from this recognition that humans are not machines. So actually, it was better having people work five days instead of six because having them work, work the sixth day was actually costing organizations money. It wasn't good for people's health and well-being. You know, there was many reasons why Henry Ford and also the, the workers' rights movement eventually came to this sort of alignment that five days is good. But work was largely physical and repetitive back then. Work is a hugely, is much more cognitive and effective now. So people do a lot more thinking, a lot more talking to people. There's a huge amount of emotional regulation required in the workplace. And the science, that means we're using our brains a lot more and our bodies a lot less. And our, our bodies can take a, a large amount of stress. So we can we can run marathons, we can, you know, we can work out, we can walk for long periods of time. But actually concentrating for long periods of time is something that we cannot do. So the average human attention span, I think, originally was two and a half minutes back in the early 2000s. Now research is suggesting it's 45 seconds. And as you see new things like, you know, TikTok and Instagram, they're feeding on that new lower attention span. So we now have this expectation that human attention should be equivalent to what a human's physical fatigue parameters are and a, an actual 
reality that says humans haven't aren't capable of doing that and so it's that misalignment that's causing the increased prevalence of issues of stress and burnout within workforces across the world that's really interesting and actually i would be keen to now approach this conversation through the lens of the organization so we know that it's great for people what considerations does the organization need to make when embarking on this journey what are the trials and tribulations they need to prepare themselves to embark upon at global we're not you know the evangelists saying that this works simply for every organization you know and it's going to be an easy ride for people because we know that's not the case you know our pilot participants show us that us as an organization me leading an organization doing this it is not without its its difficulties but I think it is a worthy investment for multiple reasons. First of all, what is a successful organization? I think that's a really important question. For many, it's driving profit. So sufficient profit to be able to either hire more staff or to give to shareholders. And consistently now, there is an emergence of a science of research that says when you invest in staff well-being and you actually make your staff happier and healthier, they are more productive. And so actually growth in revenue can be exponentially increased Instead of this current approach to profit making, which is let's treat our humans like batteries, run them down to zero, attrition, hire new talent, attrition, hire new talent. There's huge missed opportunities for exponential growth in revenue for companies there. The second is actually organizations more now than ever have a significant role to play when it comes to addressing major societal issues around quality and sustainability and health within society. So we have seen government regulation and intervention in these spaces. Some organizations have been, or some governments have been better than others in addressing these sort of issues. But the reality is, is that private sector enterprises in particular and large public sector organizations that haven't, you know, sufficient oversight or regulation are not doing what they can in order to make the world a more sustainable, happier and healthier and equal place. So actually, I think successful organizations need to slightly change their parameters around what their role is in within the greater societal context. And then lastly, this is scary. I understand that for leaders, but fortune favors the brave consistently when it comes to business. And I think it needs to be framed in the context of organizations that want to facilitate innovation. You are you you have organizations are much more likely to invest in technology transformation in you know pr process or structural transformation this is radical human resource transformation at an innovation level so you are you are testing and experimenting on how to get the best out of people and people is what drives the effectiveness of technology use of process of all those sorts of things so you you're you're getting to the root cause of what can hinder or help your organization in the long term and so actually, I think having a growth mindset to be able to see that and to, to try and get your head around that is where leaders are starting to move within the space of a four day week. With all of that in mind and you mentioning the environmental factors, could you talk to us about what a four day week could look like for the environment as a whole, i.e. how is it potentially going to benefit it? Yeah. So it comes down to a very simple equation. Sustainable well-being leads to sustainable behaviours, leads to more sustainable environmental outcomes. So when people feel well-rested and happy, people are much more likely to engage in selfless behaviours. 
Whereas selfish behaviors tend to be destructive for the environment, selfless behaviors tend to promote more sustainable outcomes within society. So what our research has shown to date and our leading academic researcher from Boston College, Professor Juliet Shore, is a leading expert in the relationship between economics and sustainability and working hours. So we've, yeah, we're very lucky to actually have a very grounded science within this space. But even from our findings, people who are working shorter hours are then more likely to use more pro-social, sustainable forms of transport. So they're less likely to use private vehicles. They are also much more likely to stay within their local communities, which obviously is good for community development. It can be good for developing businesses at the local level and not needing huge transport of, you know, external goods. Thirdly, then, for some organizations that are closing business on certain days, you can reduce energy usage, which obviously has a, a potential benefit for organizations as well. Then you look at the family unit. So actually think about sustainability a little bit more beyond just the environment. There is long working hours create family conflict and create further inequality as well within within society so what we have found is actually the group most likely to adhere to a, a reduced working hour policy is young men with young kids which is really important for helping to distribute some of that traditional non-work burden of care which lies on women traditionally so helping to redistribute some of that workload we also found that People are much more likely then to be able to like help with parenting responsibilities, but also grandparenting responsibilities. So you have this sandwich generation that are kind of millennials, Gen X at the moment, who have caring responsibilities below them and above them. So actually giving them time to be able to to care for those is is really good. And then, yeah, I suppose that's probably they're probably the main points. But I suppose the very basic equation and what the research is consistently showing is that. You know, people do good things when they feel happy. And, you know, the research is beginning to show that and more of our research in the coming few months, I imagine, will will add more validity to that claim. And just building on that equation slightly, if we extrapolate out the multiplier effect of people doing good things when they feel happy, what is the implication, if you like, on the health service system? Are we going to see less strain on it, for example, or are there other things that, that you could talk about in that space? Yeah, and it's the healthcare service is something that really concerns me and is a you know quite close to my heart because I've worked within it. My fiance is a pharmacist. You know, healthcare is is it's it's often a profession and a sector that's nearly left to its own devices, and you don't know anything about it until you need to access it. And so, healthcare has been kind of kicking and screaming for the last few years saying things are not working and it's only in times of crisis that you know a focus is put on the sector and people realize how bad it is and then suddenly things are all right again and are, are perceived to be all right again within society and then you know it's kind of left to its own devices so my depressing view is actually healthcare is in a really dire strait at the moment the nhs the hsc in ireland we have got a serious recruitment issue and a serious retention issue so it's it's not as much about just hiring staff, it's about actually being able to keep them. And the knowledge transfer and, you know, the buildup of institutional knowledge is being lost on a, on a day-to-day basis now, particularly since COVID. So if you have high burnout within your, your healthcare workforce, you know, patient care is not optimal. You know, surgeons who are sleep deprived aren't performing optimally. And these are people who are responsible for people's lives. So 
you have a system there that's not working on a minimum viable structure or a sustainable structure. People are now leaving healthcare altogether. They're not just going from one healthcare system to another. They're just saying, this is just not for me anymore. So a four-day week actually in somewhere like the NHS is actually really useful because first of all, it attracts new talent. It will retain new talent. Yes, it might cost more in the first instance, but actually with all of the overhead costs that are currently required for agency staff, for you know recruitment and retention uh, strategies that aren't working, we have found that macroeconomic cost is of still net benefit. And that example has been proven as a concept in, in Iceland, which was conducted in 2017, 2018. Health then, which is separate. So obviously chronic disease is rising within society, you know, and issues around cardiovascular disease, cancer, all these sort of things, of which one of the, some of the major contributing factors to that relate to lifestyle factors. So people's diet, people's exercise levels, people's stress and people's sleep. And we know that work has a really influential role on all of those factors. So when you're stressed, you don't sleep very well. When you don't sleep very well, you tend to eat poorly. When you don't eat poorly and when you're tired, you don't exercise. Or maybe work doesn't even allow you to get up and move that often. So what we are hoping to be able to show in our research in the coming few years is that when you can actually reduce the cumulative effect of stress, you can improve all these other lifestyle factors and ultimately maybe reduce the onset of some of these chronic disease prevalences within younger age groups within society. Wow, that is seriously, seriously interesting. And I can't wait to see where that goes. Final lens that I'd like to approach this through is the economic one. So we obviously are in a position where we've got certain narratives that are in the news at the moment. You've talked about the mental health, mental and physical health benefits of the four day week. What would you see as the economic trials and tribulations to consider if people move to a four day week? I guess it's somewhat a loaded question because what's going through my mind is if I, for example, had an extra day off in the week, I'm not in the office, I'm more likely to be out and about and therefore more likely to spend money. Is that a good thing for the economy? Because there's, you know, you extrapolate that out on a multiple multiplier and uh, we're, we're going to see more money circulating and uh, being reinvested and so on and so forth. Is, is that a consideration? Yeah, absolutely. I don't even think we've properly scratched the surface on the economy questions, but in my idea, so first of all, organizations are lying to themselves when they say that they are getting the most out of their workforce at the moment and they're really struggling and they're investing large amounts of money in mental health and well-being interventions or all these sort of things and they're obviously not getting the full utility of of a return of investment in those sort of strategies so what our research is consistently showing is that you can you know reduce all of these bad things improve all these good things and then the, the correlates of that when it came to productivity and revenue generation for companies has been either the same or growth the most recent uk study of 60 uh, companies found that comparable to previous periods, there was a 35% increase in revenue. And when you exclude some of those ex external kind of economy kind of growth issues, reduced working hours attributed for between 1.7 to 3% in growth of revenue within organizations. When you consider that's actually only a six-month intervention of where organizations are undergoing a radical change internally, that's actually quite a, a very impressive feat. So our one-year findings actually are coming out in the next month and a half, and those findings have been maintained, if not improved, in metrics. So, you know, investing in a new way of working is going to lead to a better revenue generation for companies in the long term. It goes back to a very good basic point I said that, you know, improving people's well-being improves organizational performance, improves profit. 
and what actually you're doing as part of a four day week intervention is is stopping the lie that time is an is the is the metric of productivity which we know is arbitrary at this point but actually defining the key activities and outcomes within your organization that drive profit they are now the success metrics in which you're going to define performance and you're going to allocate all of your currently albeit shortened work week to pursuing the key activities to drive those outcomes to be realized the broader point then that you're making around more time off so absolutely if we're finding people are staying within their local communities then they are investing in local produce local products and building a more sustainable you know ecosystem that doesn't require them to have to travel 20k to their closest tesco or to their closest you know mns instead they can buy locally and if the local shopper is getting more revenue through that way you know maybe it can be more cost uh, competitive as well beyond that then you know when people have more time off they don't have to spend as much on some of those external things that they need to currently use so if they're relying heavily on child you know childcare services we found a 22% reduction in childcare costs throughout the trial. And when you consider some countries, childcare costs is extortionate to the point actually of it being crime, if I were to so say it, you know, it's it's capitalizing on what society needs, but society can't afford, you know, giving more people money back within their pockets to be able to invest that then in key activities that actually drive their health and well-being, I think is a win-win in the long term for everyone. So let's look at implementation mode. Every organization has its own set of individual circumstances. What would your advice be when it comes to considerations around how they may structure the four-day week? Is there a universal approach? And if not, how do we individualize it? A great question as well, and, and, and a nice opportunity for, for me to address a misconception about the four-day week. So four-day week is the hook, the tagline, you know, the, the, the one that generates all the noise. But beneath that, what for the week globalist actually trying to do is make a meaningful reduction in working time hours. So we conceptualized a framework and methodology called 180-100. So it's 100% pay for 80% time for 100% output or productivity. And that means that there is something in it for staff, which is a 20% reduction in working time, but equally there's a guarantee from employers that productivity is going to be maintained. And that framework has been applied in a multitude of different ways depending on the business needs of the different pilot participants so when people think of four-day week they think monday to thursday closed doors on friday and you can obviously see for how for many sectors how something like that would not be feasible but for certain white collar sectors that's the trial and tested and that's what works well for them for other industries then they are doing monday to thursday for some staff and some staff are doing Tuesday to Friday. So they're maintaining the continuity of customer service, for example, but they're just doing it on a, on a lower staffing structure across two days in the week. For other organizations, then it's not feasible actually to, to give staff four days. They must actually come in five days, but we're actually going to shorten the workday. So instead of finishing at five, you're going to finish at three 30 and you're going to do that across five days and actually you've got down to 80 percent of your time within that period of time for other organizations then who might go through peaks and troughs in their business so one of the most famous examples in our pilots was a fish and chip shop and they operate on you know normal hours during peak periods of their work but then they actually close business or, or reduce working hours during the the troughs in their work because 
what it's actually costing to have staff there from a well-being and performance perspective versus what actually is coming in in income is not marrying up. So they found that actually if we can get them better rested to perform better during the peak periods, that's much that's a much better return of investment for us. So they're kind of the different models that we're seeing. And then lastly, another one that maybe some organizations are doing is that they're allowing companies to accrue. So if if you can't, if if you're required to be in for a full week, maybe you, you accrue a day, which can be taken then within that month. So there are many ways to, to skin this cat or as my fiance says in a much more, I suppose, animal friendly, what is it? Feed, feed two birds at one scone instead of kill two birds at one stone. So I think that's the research independent, the academic independent research, which happens as part of our programs as conducted by Boston College and Cambridge University, allows us to just give this as an experiment bed and see how companies are going to do it. And then the academics can capture all that data. And the more data we get, the better we're able to showcase best practice, which ones are landing better, which ones you know are worth considering for particular sectors or for particular countries. So an organization makes the decision to embark on this transition. What would you advise are the measurements that they should be using to assess the effectiveness of this of this movement? The way that we go about this in our pilot programs. So four day week global, we run pilot programs to assist companies in this sort of journey because it's it's not as simple as saying to your staff, we're closing shop now on Friday, you almost you know get your work done in four days that would lead to probably compressed working so people actually would probably do all the work but they do it within a 40-hour week in four days which is not what what we are advocating for instead when companies join say a four-day week global pilot they first of all start with the why so the motivation for actually doing a four-day week and as we kind of alluded to there are many different motivations why companies come on board some is coming on from a recruitment or talent perspective some are coming on from well-being some are coming on from productivity other sustainability and equality we then basically pose the question to them and say how are you assessing productivity in your organization at the moment and they scratch their heads for a while and say oh probably by whether people are logged in and you know, if the work's getting done and time and all those sort of very general, vague kind of metrics. And so we work with them to say, well, it's time to shift the paradigm now. So what are the key activities within your organization that drive strategy realization or growth or revenue generation? And that is a that is a difficult time for organizations, but a really worthwhile activity because you are shifting the pendulum away from time being the productivity metric to these key outcomes being the productivity metrics. That gives you the end point. Then we go to the how do you get there? And the reason why reduced working hours allows you to facilitate this journey is because it's Parkinson's law. So when you narrow the time frame available for someone to complete a task, they just get it done. And so I think what happens in the five-day week is there's a huge amount of waste of time happening. There is you know, processes not working, technology not working, culture and leadership not driving high performance. So organizations then suddenly have to look at their current patterns of working and say, you know, cut that meeting from an hour to down to 15 minutes and we'll do a, a, an agenda beforehand. That meeting can go, we can do an online, you know, to-do list that we can check in on at the end of the week by email. Other people are then redesigning their workday. So actually staff might say, yeah, this is all great, but actually I have no time to do the activities that you're asking me to do. 
okay, we're going to block out three to four hours of concentrated deep work where no one's allowed to distract you each day in your work. And you will get your work done much more likely than if you're not being disturbed all the time. And then finally, another one is, you know, one of the concerns people have about a four day week is, God, it seems like I'm going to be working really hard all the time. <laughs> you know, will there be any time for actually fun in work or, or connecting with colleagues? So that is equally important as scheduling in those times. I think one of the biggest conversations that's happening in the world of work now in this kind of return to work hybrid remote, flexible working pattern is that we've given these benefits, but we haven't structured work in any way to actually realize the potential benefits of them. So for me, I see four day week as the completion of a trifecta of work interventions. And what I think an ideal work week would look like as just a general framework is you might have staff at home on Monday, you might have staff at home on Thursday, and they're getting deep concentrated pieces of work done within that period of time, individualized work. You might have them in the office on Tuesday, or you might spend Tuesday as a day of online collaboration and you're bringing them all together then to do collaboration work. And then Wednesday, you know, you might have for some other forms of activities, but you're being much more structured and deliberate about how the work week is, is, is happening. And that then is constantly driving towards the realization of the key outcomes that determine productivity for your organization. And what advice would you give to businesses looking to embark on this journey in terms of the considerations they need to make? We have a program, sorry, I'm not trying to pitch, but we, you know, we bring you through all those change management questions that you have. So why are you doing this? How are you going to communicate this? Are you going to have a smaller pilot within your team? Have you got frontline staff and backline staff, backend staff? Does their work patterns look differently? Maybe you're going to trial on one group first. How are you going to communicate that to group two? How are you safeguarding your, yourself against failure? So what are the red flags, the amber flags that you want to be aware of? How are you going to measure success? What are the key juncture points of which you're going to check in and realize if this is working for you or not? And then I think what's useful about being part of Global's community of, of companies embarking on this journey is that you learn from other sectors. So you know you might be a marketing agency in the UK and you can learn how it's been done within a marketing agency in the US or in Germany. Similarly, you know, it's a change journey. Anyone who undergoes any change management intervention realizes that there is ups, ebbs and flows in the journey. So it's not going to go right for you straight away. And that's why it's a pilot. It's an experiment. So actually having a support network around you there that actually says, don't worry, if you can get past this tough period of figuring things out, you're coming to a really sweet spot, you know, in the in the third, fourth month. And that's what we consistently are finding out as a narrative. So actually investing heavily in and setting up the right structures early on, you might not see the realization of the benefits straight away, but it is coming in, in the medium to longer term of the pilot. I think that's why, you know, 93% of the companies who have signed up to our pilots to date have either continued on with the pilot or have implemented it fully at this point. Let's talk about you for a bit. Could you tell us about your leadership style? I think I think it's fascinating leadership as a as a, you know a behavioral trait and I think I've probably changed slightly in my leadership style and probably even fluctuate on a day-to-day -day basis depending on what I need from people but I think what the world needs more of is is em empathetic forms of leadership so you know one of our founders Charlotte Lockhart always uses the analogy that work you know we're we're people coming to work as a gift of of 
of their time to us. And, you know, we should nearly value that as, you know, people coming towards and giving us their best talent and their capabilities to try and you know, drive our organization. Whereas I think the analogy is often actually that workers are lazy and, you know, we need to put more controls and measures around them. So I, I subscribe to a much more, there is untapped potential within everyone and different things motivate everyone. And actually investing heavily in trying to understand what motivates people is key to actually trying to, to get the most out of people. I think being vulnerable is something that I've, I've quite learned. I've learned a lot from you know people I've looked up to over the last few years is really important particularly in times of crisis within organizations and that will feel like that in a four-day week conversation actually when you're when you're engaging in this intervention is to say as the leader you know I don't have all the answers to this actually we're a talented pool of employees and we will come up with better solutions together thinking about this this issue instead of me trying to come up with a solution all by myself and then I think sometimes you know working on yourself as well is something that I've had to do a huge amount of time so I am your classic perfectionistic unrelenting standards you know person and I know I'm not performing to my best ability when I allow that version of myself to go into overdrive I'm not doing my work justice but more importantly I'm not doing myself any justice so leadership for me is is important is as important about self-development as much as what version of yourself you, you bring to your workplace what about your personal values? What are they and why are they important to you? I think one that has really grown over for me the last few years is integrity. So there is so much like undermining and, you know, undercutting of people in in business that I just I don't see why we need to do it. I I, I don't understand why people can't see that we work better when we work together and, and collaborate and share. It's not a uh, you know, it doesn't have to be this very distributive negotiation tactic where there's, you know, one pie and, you know, I must get as much of it as possible. If anything, my experience has shown when we do work together, you know, we get better. And maybe that comes from my background in in healthcare, where you can't adopt that sort of approach, you know, because you are always working in, in collaboration and partnership with patients. So I think integrity is one. Being a human, like, I know it sounds silly, but like, you know, I feel like there is this this version that we put on of ourselves in work and then there's the real versions of ourselves and I always found myself very malaligned with organizations that don't allow you to bring a more authentic version of yourself to the workplace and for that to be really accepted and valued I think you'd find a lot of organizations trying to encourage that but not actually living that through their value systems and I think being like family orientated really like as in you know work is work like it it will always be there and I've invested a lot into reading about the literature and signs of happiness and what it consistently shows you is that you know connection with people who really matter with you in your life are the kind of things that you know ultimately people wish they did more of when they're later on in their life so I'm investing heavily in trying to find that new balance now in this role, as I have done in previous roles in research, in previous roles as physio. But it's a deliberate value system that I must continue to focus on because I know when I do and I get it right, I reap the benefits of it. What's the biggest misconception people have about you? I think what I have maybe struggled with in the past, in all honesty, is issues around my ego. So I think the 
the unrelenting perfectionistic standards that you know was drilled into me from from childhood you know of, of academic achievement and all that sort of stuff I the ego has come out as a protective mechanism for me several times in my life and I've seen that then spill into behavioral effects of myself that I don't like so I think what I would what I don't I would hope that I, I put in sufficient you know sufficient efforts now that that version of myself isn't ever on display because it's certainly something that I invest heavily in I've, I've worked on myself enough that the ego doesn't need to come out to play but I think sometimes you could find that maybe with the current role that I'm in my age which often comes up in conversations and you know my my background that maybe I might be you know your your kind of typical tech bro kind of leader in the space talking mumbo jumbo so I think I'm always trying to find how do I be the most authentic version of myself in a public space and hope that that comes through in my behaviors and my communication and could you talk to us about your own relationship with your well-being it's been a ride (laughs) (laughs) I always say so I've always I've struggled with my mental health several times in my life and I've had periods of depression and anxiety and anxiety attacks and all that sort of stuff and I've gone to therapy several times over and I feel like now finally in my life I'm at a place where I kind of know myself I've gone to you know I've done things like cognitive behavioral therapy and schema therapy and I've done all the lifestyle things so I actually I've, I've ticked all the boxes which has been a long journey from me from a place where actually my first leadership position which was a very stressful one six or seven years ago and I've become heavily dependent on alcohol and binge eating and all that sort of stuff I've learned a lot about myself and how to better manage my own well-being since then but actually even in the last year I was perfectionism perfectionism really overtook my life so while I wasn't necessarily feeling like I was performing very well in I might have been performing very well professionally in my life. Personally, it was a huge personal cost to myself. And that resulted in me, again, increasing my my alcohol intake. And then I, I gave up alcohol. And then I thought, okay, why do I still feel anxious? And I convinced myself that it was because I was training for a marathon. And then I was not feeling better after a marathon. So eventually I had to stop externalizing all my causes to something else and and do the hard work on myself. And that has been a radical journey of, you know, self-love and compassion for myself over the last seven to eight months. Is there a situation that you could refer to that had a profound change on your leadership style? When people ask me about like, who do I look to, to as a leader? The person who first showed belief in me, probably before I saw belief within myself, was my physiotherapy tutor when I was in third year. And I remember feeling like a real outcast actually on clinical placement at the time because I didn't really have an interest in respiratory physio. I was going into very much a different career, but really like not enjoying my my clinical placements. And I remember her telling me, you know, you're going to do something different and you're going to do something great. And I was in a very like probably lonely place because it was it's a very it's not the norm to leave the profession. And there's a very clear career pathway. So her showing me belief actually that you know you aren't stuck here you can go on and you can do things and you have it in you to do that that was a really profound moment of change for me and I think that has been something as a behavioral trait that I now do with people all the time so when people say I feel stuck I'm here and like I feel like I can't change 
I, I tell them that it is possible. I'm a living example of it, that you can go from one career to another career to another career. You don't have to follow the status quo and that you are the road, you know, Oh my God, I can't believe I'm going to say this. The road less taken <laughs> is, you know, often more fun and more prosperous. And yeah, it's risky, but it it's, if you're not comfortable in the work that you're doing, leave. You know, you don't have to stay. So true. As a behavioral expert, what advice would you give to uh, educational institutes about preparing the future workforce and so that they're I guess optimized to deal with the ambiguity that they're going to face coming into the world again I, th- I use self-determination theory as a, as a framework for my own like self-check-ins and my check-in with my environment so when I've been in situations where I feel I don't I don't feel very intrinsically motivated in my work right now I use that checklist of okay in my environment, in my workplace, do I have enough autonomy? If I don't, can I create more autonomy for myself within work? And maybe that's something like, you know, maybe it's actually blocking your time in your calendar. Maybe it's speaking to your manager and saying, can you place a little bit more trust in me? I know that can be scary, but if that's what needs to happen to give you that sense of autonomy, it's a really worthwhile activity. The second one is relatedness. So am I feeling lonely in work? If so, I need to reach out to people and I need to connect with people at work. The third one then is, do I feel confident in what I'm doing? And, okay, this is a long project that I'm doing. It doesn't necessarily seem like there's any end site within this, but what have I actually learned over the last while? What are the key things that actually have driven my my professional growth? And even reframing that narrative can help you perceive a level of competency. So that can help in that level of intrinsic motivation. But I, I'm also really interested in this kind of emergence of research, which says that you don't have to just be good at work, be good at things in life as well. And actually that will feed into your work and vice versa. So work-life integration as much as work-life balance. So if I don't feel any of those things in work, how do I create sufficient opportunities outside of my work where I, I do have more autonomy, hopefully, albeit there are certain people who don't, reaching out and connecting with friends or family and taking up an activity that you know can give me a sense of competency when you look at a lot of the re- research around recovery which is primarily led out by this academic called Sonnentag in Germany she speaks around you know active recovery so you are much more likely to to bounce back from the subjective strain of work by doing something after work that's active not sitting back and watching tv so taking up a musical kind of instrument taking up a physical activity, joining a team, playing chess, these sort of activities where you actually get a sense of, I'm building a skill a skill set here internally. That's much more likely to make you feel recovered going into your next day at work. So I just find it a really brilliant framework that's so easy to, to memorize and check in with on a, on a day-to-day basis. Fantastic. What's your ultimate life goal? Do you know what? I feel like I'm at the right place where I need to be at the right time in my life at the moment, which was a place I'd never felt in my life. So I, I was always striving for, for more. And I always wanted to work in an organization that was purpose-led to be able to utilize my skill set, to be an academic on the side, to bridge the gap between research and practice, and ultimately, you know, to, to have sufficient autonomy to be able to carve out what type of life I want for myself. So 
I didn't expect to be in a position like this for quite a long time. And uh, I'm very fortunate to be able to you know, have that opportunity now within my life. So I think for me over the next few years, it's about honing in and, and, and trying to perfect this as much as possible for myself, because the next step in my life is, is family. So starting my own family and finding that right balance to, to, you know, have enough time with, with Lauren and with my, my future kids to, to really be there for them, because, you know, if, if I can't do it, you know, with all of the, you know, the, the things that I preach about and also the sufficient opportunities that I have to craft my own work life, you know, I don't know how anyone is going to be able to do it, particularly men, because we, you know, the, the gender equality conversation requires us as much as, as women to, to drive change. So we have to show and role model, you know, a different version of the male worker to our kids compared to what's been shown to us, you know? Hang on. What do you want people to say about you when you're not in the room? I would like people to think that I am like a sound person. I <laughs> I think I spent too much of my life wanting people to see me as competent and good at my job. And, you know, that ultimately didn't, that doesn't drive, you know, my own level of, of, of happiness. So, you know, I would like people to think that he 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 listens and he he understands and he's he's there to try and connect with you and to understand you and your perspective on things and yeah I think that's kind of the main trade of which I would try and focus a lot of my energy on now so therefore I hope will be something that I could pride myself on in the medium term long term really really insightful conversation and thank you so much for everything that you've shared with us both from a personal perspective but also the insights regarding the four-day week we're now moving towards our quick fire questions so I wondered if we could start by asking you what's something that you've achieved that you're proud of my PhD oh nice what's one word that best describes you sound (laughs) (laughs) how did you react to your greatest failure Badly. (laughs) (laughs) What's something that you regret and you would have done differently? Drank less. Nice. What do you like most about yourself? I'm sound. (laughs) (laughs) What's your biggest area of development? Emotional regulation. Could you tell us about something that you're passionate about? Well-being. Making people happy. And what's the best piece of advice that you've ever been given? Just do it. Even if, you know, society's telling you that you don't, you shouldn't, just do it. Fantastic. And finally, what's one book or podcast that you'd recommend to our subscribers? I really like Transcend by Scott Barry Kaufman. It is an updated version of Maslow's Hierarchy of Needs based on a lot more scientific evidence. And yeah, I just think he has done a really fabulous job at pulling in basically humans needs and psychological growth and ultimately how do people get to a state of you know self-actualization brilliant dale thank you so much for joining us today thank you for the insights and best of luck with everything that you're doing with the four-day week global thank you so much thank you for having me thank you for joining us today please remember to like and subscribe to the podcast also it would be really helpful if you could write us a review it will help with our ratings